You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, good morning. If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to finish up uh, this chapter today. I'm really thankful to, to be here this morning, being able to gather with God's people around God's Word. I feel like this week was just kind of filled with um, different challenges and different uncertainties, uh, both with my family at Trinity, but then also with our church family, whether it was people being admitted to the hospital or people enduring injury or even those that were having to experience loss. Just a, a challenging week, uh, things that we hadn't planned at the beginning of the week that we encountered. Um, and I think today's passage uh, offers hope and encouragement to us as we encounter those type of days and those type of weeks. Um, so I look forward to drawing your attention uh, to that today. Last week we were um, looking at the portion of Paul's prayer here in Ephesians 1 where it talks specifically about the Christian's need for his mind and his heart to be enlightened, his, his heart's eyes to be enlightened more and more to the things of God. We saw that Paul was praying specifically for us to um, have our, our, our hearts enlightened, our eyes, the eyes of our hearts enlightened to see the hope to which we've been called, the riches of our glorious inheritance, and the immeasurable greatness of God's power. And so we talked about needing to be able to have spiritual eyes to see everything in this world through the lens of God's Word. Um, that the way we approach things is different than the things of this world and the ways that people of this world would approach it. And we, we highlighted Caleb as an example of this, right? We talked about Caleb and the ten spies looking into the promised land. The ten spies are seeing giants and fear and trouble and an inability to advance. Whereas Caleb's like, well, I see the same things, but I see God's promises and God's deliverance and God's protection, right? And so they're looking at the same thing. They're just seeing it differently. They're processing it differently. Where Caleb's like, let's go. The other ten spies are saying, let's go back to Egypt if necessary to avoid this type of future, right? And so we want to see life through the lens of God's word, much like Caleb demonstrates to us. Um, And so we talked last week about having our minds further exposed to God's word, being in the word, and then praying for God to open our hearts to receive it, to not just know more about God, but to love him more through that knowledge. We talked about him being the father of glory and how he's moving us uh, to glory through the working of the Holy Spirit in our life. And so I challenged you last week to pray for God to show you more of him right? To pray that God would specifically show you more about him and that you would know him more and trust him more and love him more, but that you would also open your prayer life to include others in that too, right? That Paul models for us what it looks like to pray for others, to, to experience these same type of things as well. So we're going to pick up this week in chapter one, and we're actually going to start with verse 19. That's where we ended last week, and we're actually going to tie verse 19 into the remainder of this chapter as well. It says, Um, Again, in context, Paul's praying that the hearts uh, would be enlightened to see, verse 19, what he says is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There's something I think that's comforting when you 
feel like you know somebody that's in authority over a situation that you need authority over, right? Think about it. If you're, if you're in trouble with the law and you were to step into a courtroom, there would be something that would be reassuring, I think, to see either a judge or a police officer or somebody that you knew in that courtroom that went to your church, right? Somebody that knows you outside of just what you're there for that day, right? Uh, there's still an ex- expectation of justice to be had, right? But at least there's kind of a, a context that the person who's making some decisions here knows me, knows me more than just what this ticket says that I'm here for, right? Even when we're young kids, like as we're growing up, whether it's at recess or PE, I think there's something reassuring, especially if you're a kid who's maybe not super athletic, maybe you don't have the same abilities as others, to know that one of your friends has been selected to be team captain for that day, right? And so the team captain's going to be choosing people, and you're like, all right, great, my best friend's team captain. Surely I'm not getting picked last today, right? There's just something assuring to know that the person in authority knows me, and there's an expectation that there's a, maybe an added level of protection because of that understanding, right? And I think what we see today in this passage is a strong reminder of who's in authority over everything, right? And the relationship that we enjoy with that being, with Jesus Christ, the risen and exalted Christ, being in the ultimate position of authority, the great assurance that that should give us this morning, that, that he controls everything and controls it for specific purposes, and we're going to see that today. From a summary sentence standpoint, The power that raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him to the position where he reigns over everything, everywhere for all time is now directed towards us that believe, giving us the ability to trust him and follow him until he returns. Let that sentence set in for you for a minute. The power that raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him to the position where he reigns over everything, everywhere for all time is now directed towards us that believe, giving us the ability to trust him and follow him until he returns. For our kids, Christians have the same power that raised Jesus from the dead working inside of them. This is a, this is a weighty matter that Paul brings to us this morning through this passage. He's drawing our attention again. He's praying that believers will have the eyes of their hearts enlightened to better understand the greatness of God's power. And then he he kind of deviates from his prayer here and begins to reinforce what that power is that he wants us to see, right? We're to see this immeasurable greatness of his power. Don't lose sight of the focus of this passage. The focus of this passage is for prayers to be answered that we would see this power. Then he deviates and kind of goes on a rabbit trail here and begins to describe the power that he's talking about. It's the power that was the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So just think about that for a minute. What type of power are we talking about? We're talking about the power that Christ had living this earthly life where he endured every temptation that we endure, right? The book of Hebrews talks about he had to be made flesh and blood. He had to become the God-man so that he could be our understanding high priest, right? He had to go through the things that we go through and say no to those things, right? And so the power that it took for Jesus to live perfectly throughout his life, the power that it took for Jesus to willfully yield his life to death on the cross, not just any death, death on the cross, Paul talks about in Philippians, right? Then the power that it took to raise him from the dead, 
a resurrection that had never taken place before and is yet to take place again, right? Others had been raised to life, people in the Old Testament and people in the New Testament, but they were raised to life to die again, right? They were brought back to life in the same body that had previously died, and it was the same body that would once again die. Christ is raised, the Bible tells us, as the first fruits, the one who now has an, a, a glorified body who, who will not die again, right? And so it's the power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead, but then also the power that it took to raise Jesus to a point of authority once again, right? He had humbled himself. He had stepped down into this earth as a man, and now he's been exalted once again, Paul talks about in Philippians, right? He's been given a name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he's Lord of all, right? The power that it took for him to, to, to defeat Satan, to defeat death, to defeat temptation, that's the power that Paul says, I want you to see this, and I want you to understand it more, and I want your heart to embrace this more, that this power is available to you, and it's directed to you as the believer, right? It's an unbelievable, immeasurable, great power that Paul is talking about here. He says, you as the believer needs to see it and understand that it is directed towards you. By way of introduction, let's look a little bit about what we see truth-wise about this power of God. The power of God that we need to see and understand it spiritually. Because here's the thing, Hebrews 2, let me read it for you. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. This is why it takes spiritual eyes to see this. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now the author of Hebrews is telling us, look, we're talking about Jesus being in control of everything and everything being subjected to him. But then he reminds us, we don't see that with our physical eyes necessarily right now. Right? We, don't, we don't necessarily see victory over death and victory over suffering and, and victory for glory. We may not be able to perceive that just yet with our physical eyes, right? Those things that we speak in terms of being reality in Scripture, because God presents them as reality, but it's future reality in some ways, right? And so the author of Hebrews says, we don't see this in subjection yet to him, maybe physically. And so that's why Paul's saying, I need you to see this spiritually. I need you to go about your week this week. And I need you to encounter situations where it looks like God's not in control, maybe, where it looks like things are in disarray, and to see it with your spiritual eyes and know, uh-uh, this stuff's in subjection to him, right? He is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God while it feels like things are out of control. While I did not expect this loved one to go into the hospital this week, or I didn't expect this injury to happen, or I didn't expect to lose this one that I was close to. And now things feel out of whack, for our spiritual eyes to be able to see, uh-uh, this is, this is in subjection to Christ, right? Christ, the power of Christ is at work. Even though I don't necessarily see it or feel it right now, it's still a true reality. So we have to see this with spiritual eyes, right? First, we want to see that the power is provided. 
this power that's being described and talked about here, it is provided for us. Our eyes need to see and need to be enlightened to see the greatness of his power and its ability to impact us. Paul is praying for something that is very much possible for us to enjoy, right? So it's provided, it's there, it's available. It's a matter of us embracing it with these spiritual eyes to see that God's power is made available towards us. Paul's praying for this. It's provided prayer. Number two, it's intentional prayer. It's directed towards those who believe, right? Believers are ones who can claim the work of God and the power of God in their life. It says the immeasurable greatness of this power towards us who believe. That's where the power is directed. That's where the power is pointing to. That's where the power is running. It is running towards those who believe. It's running towards the church, verse 22 talks about. He put all things under his feet and gave him, gave Christ as head over all things to the church. Right? It's an intentional power. Number three, it's immeasurable in its greatness. It can't be comprehended with human mind. We cannot exhaust our study of it. Again, I told you last week, Paul's praying ongoingly for this, not because it hasn't been answered yet, but because it's a continual need. It's one of those things that just needs to stay on the prayer list, that our eyes would continue to see the power of God, because we will never get to a point, especially here before Christ returns, we'll never get to the point where we fully comprehend the power of God, right? And so we're, we're being prayed for by Paul. We pray for each other for this, that we would see this immeasurable power towards us. It's also a power that's verifiable. What do I mean by that? I think Paul draws attention to the resurrection of Jesus as proof that this power is real, that it's active, right? That it's available because we've seen it in action. He says that it accords with the resurrection. It's this immeasurable greatness of power according to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Think about some of the greatest feats of mankind, right? God has, I mean, God has equipped us and given us minds and abilities that oftentimes amaze us as human beings, right? As we see other human beings do things and perform things and accomplish things, we're amazed by those things. But even man's greatest accomplishments obviously are dwarfed by God's greatest examples of power. And when we look in Scripture, the two that I think are highlighted most in Scripture, the greatest feats of God's power on display, creation and the resurrection, right? Creation and resurrection. So you look in the Old Testament, the Old Testament people are constantly drawing upon the creative God, the God who has created everything out of nothing, right? It's this God that saved them out of the Exodus, saved them out of Egypt, but it's the God who created everything is what they constantly are highlighting about his power. Then you see a shift in the New Testament, what is perceived to be a greater act of power, right? Not to take anything away from God's creative power in the Old Testament where he spoke everything into being, but to bring someone dead to life, right? That was a, that was a new level of power that hadn't, be, hadn't been experienced before. Again, not somebody who was just raised to life once again to die once again, but to raise Christ to life, in a state now where we could all long for and hope for a similar fate, right? This power, it's verifiable. And Paul says, look to the example of how this power works. Raise Jesus from the dead. And then number five, it's current. Because not only does he draw attention to the resurrected Christ as an example of God's power, 
He draws attention to Christ now being seated at the right hand of God, where he still is today, ruling and reigning far above all rule and authority, right? So it's not just that we verify God's power by the resurrection. We verify it by the fact that everything in this world is submitted to Christ, right? Nothing happens outside of his purposes or plans. It's a current power that's being exercised and and used, and it's a power that we can expect to be accomplished in our life as well. All right, so let's, let's jump right into the text and look at it from an outline standpoint. Number one, as we think about pondering the power of God and, and embracing it with, with enlightened spiritual eyes, number one, we want to focus on the placement of Christ. We want to focus on the placement of Christ. Where does Paul talk about Christ being placed in this passage? He starts by reminding us that he's the risen Christ. Before he tells us where Christ is placed, he reminds us where he is not placed, right? He's not buried. He's not in the tomb. He's not separated from his body, right? Every other human being who has died, spirit is one place, body is resting somewhere, right? And we long for the day where those are reunited. Christ, we are reminded, is not in that state, right? He's not a dead savior. He's not a dead religious leader. Just like every other religion, Leaders are dead. Leaders have passed. Leaders have gone. We are different in our belief. We are different in that we believe Christ is alive today. And all the evidence, all the human evidence, all the critical evidence points to him being alive. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15 that if that's not true, if that's not the case, then our faith is futile. Right? But if it is true, if the resurrected Christ is real, is alive. He's coming again, and it should strike healthy fear in each of us, right? Healthy fear in each of us that he's alive, and that he's coming again, and he's coming to rule and reign where we do see it with our physical eyes, right? Revelation 19 is that passage we looked at years ago in our study of Revelation, where where he comes riding on that white horse, and he comes riding to devastate all rulers and authorities that are in place here on earth, right? He comes to physically show himself as the king of kings. And if we believe that as Christians, well, we can't ever walk away from the faith, right? It would take something entering into our life to convince us that Christ is dead for us to leave him and live for the things of this world. I mean, I was, I was shocked this week. I had, a, I had a friend of mine who I used to work with in ministry call me he needed some information, and he has made it very clear on his uh, social media that he is deviating from what Christ would have him to do right now, right? He's left his family. Um, he's left his kids. He's, he's found someone else to be with, and he is, he's in the process of making all that official, right? So he calls me, and it was just, after working in ministry together with him, for him to so casually just kind of throw out there, hey, I don't know if you've heard, but this has happened, this has happened, this is what I'm doing, and just kind of move right through that so quickly, right? And I, and I can't help but hear those things and think like, Jesus is still alive, right? Like he, he's still back from the dead. He's still giving us commands to follow. He's still placed expectations on what it looks like to love him and to submit to him. How can you just casually call out these things that you're now doing, right? Revelation 19 is still happening. He's still coming back, right? If we believe that, if we believe he's the risen Christ, man, it shapes the way that we live right now, Right? Shapes the way that we live. Number two, though, he's not placed in the grave, but he is enthroned at the right hand of God, Paul says. 
he worked this power in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. He's at the right hand of the Father. This unique, singular position of honor and authority. This one spot next to God, the Father in Jesus has it. And he's been given this position of authority. He's in the position needed to rule and reign, and he has the power to do so, right? You've all maybe heard of people who, who have positions of authority, but maybe they're not given any power with it, right? You think of like uh, how England uh, and their government and whatnot is structured, right? They have people who are kind of like the real authority, and then they have like this royal family that just kind of lingers around, and it's something to kind of remember the old days, but like They've got other governmental authority that really rules and reigns the show over there, right? So there's times where people are in positions of authority where they're more of a a figurehead, but not really empowered to do anything, right? That's not the case with Christ, right? Christ is there ruling and reigning, and Hebrews 1 talks about the power, not just the position that he holds. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Right? So God shows his creative power by having Christ actually show that power by creating the world. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And then look what he does with the power of God. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Right? He's in a position of authority, and he possesses the power that comes with it. Right? And so we can focus on that placement this morning. As we get ready to start another week that will undoubtedly have circumstances and experiences that we weren't anticipating today, right? we can focus on the placement of Christ, that there is a Christ who lives and reigns today. He is not in the grave. He is enthroned at the right hand of the Father, and he is upholding everything with the word of his power. Number two, we can focus on the power of Christ, right? We see where he's at location-wise. We see the, the authority that's been given to him by placement. He's been raised, he's been exalted and enthroned, and then we see the power that comes with that. We focus on that power. Number one, he has all of the authority over every authority, He has all of the authority over every authority. So back in Ephesians, raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So think about it. Every political rule, every physical might, and every spiritual force is submitted to him because, ultimately, not because God just says it, not because God just gives it to Christ, but ultimately, Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, right? The reason that Jesus has the authority, the reason that he's placed in this position, and is also given the power to rule and reign, he created all of it, right? 
He's created every single bit of it. And so therefore it has to submit to him. So every political rule, every, every um, dominion, every authority, every physical might, every spiritual force is in full submission to him. Full submission to him, right? He is supreme over and above all powers and all names. Philippians 2 is where we see that exaltation of Christ that, that Paul highlights for us. But Philippians chapter 2 Uh, verse 6. Those in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's been given this status. He's been given this name that's above every name. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Every ruler will submit to him physically, even though that's already happening right now behind the scenes, right? I was listening to a podcast that Snowbird did recently, and they were talking about Jesus being described as the king of kings. And if we're not careful... We just think of him as being like the best king of all other kings, right? Like he's the ultimate king in comparison to all other kings, right? And that's true, but also by calling him the king of kings, what we mean is that he, he is the king and every other king is in submission to his kingship, right? Even though they're not fully aware of it, right? Even though they don't realize it, they can't operate outside of God's power. They can't operate outside of God's permission, not one ruler or authority on this earth right now. Not one physical might, not one spiritual force present on this earth right now can operate outside of his plans or purposes. Man, what great assurance that is for us to know that the team captain, right, is our savior and our best friend. And he is ruling and reigning everything for our good. This heavenly position that's mentioned here, it's unique And this term heavenly place is unique to the book of Ephesians. So I want to show you some other ways that it's used so we can better understand maybe what's uh, being getting at here by by Paul. In uh, chapter 1, verse 3, where else do we see the term heavenly places? We have blessings that are sourced in this location, this heavenly place. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Right? So, Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places where Christ is has been given to us as believers, right? We also wrestle with forces that find themselves in the heavenly places, right? So you go to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, right? So Paul also pictures these other authorities, these other forces, right? These other powers in the heavenly places, and we're struggling and wrestling against that, this spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. We also find in chapter 2, verse 6, that we're to be seated with Christ in these heavenly places. It says in Ephesians 2, verse 6, that we've been raised up with him, and we've been seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. You see the parallel there with the power that's described in chapter 1? The power of God 
raised Jesus from the dead, seated him in the heavenly places. And we're going to see in the coming weeks, chapter 2, we've been raised by the same power. We have been seated with him in the heavenly places as well. That future inheritance we've talked about. All right? So what assurance is there that if, if there's other powers and other authorities and other dominions taking place in the heavenly places, what assurance do we have that Christ is in control of that? It's because of how it's talked about, again, in chapter 1 now, verse 20. He's been seated at the right hand in the heavenly places where? Far above the rule and authority and power and dominion and every other name that's mentioned there, right? So while there's other rulers present in the heavenly places, Jesus is seated far above, far above in a far greater position of authority. No one treads where he does. Now, it's easy for us to see that God's in control of uh, the president of the United States and leaders around the country. But his authority extends to Satan, demons, death, false prophets, beasts, the greatest ruling deceivers of all time, right? Let me turn your attention to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This, this happens to be one of my favorite passages that we've preached here at um, Sovereign Hope. And um, first two books that we went through. What I love about this passage is that this is the kind of passage I think you look at, and you can either look at it like the 10 spies, or you can look at it like Caleb, right? When you look at it like Caleb does, I mean, you just see like what, what, we, what we titled that sermon, the greatest trap of all time. Because when it feels like evil is winning. And when evil feels like it's winning, really all that's being accomplished is God's greatest purpose, and that's to trap and to judge all of evil. Look what it says. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come right? Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with, uh, with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time." For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness, right? The 10 spies read this chapter and they say, oh my goodness, like there's a man of lawlessness that's coming and he's empowered by Satan, maybe even the embodiment of Satan, and he's going to deceive people, and he's going to set himself up in the temple of God, and he's going to proclaim himself to be God, and people are going to listen to him. 
And yeah, Jesus wins in the end, but like, man, this is awful. This is terrible, right? Caleb reads this chapter and says, well, what's interesting here is that this guy can't do it until God says that he can. And he's restrained from being able to do it until God says that he can. And even when he comes to power to deceive people, the only people that he can deceive, it says, verse 10, are those who were already perishing to begin with, right? Which means Christians don't fall prey to this, right? People that are believers, people that are chosen, they don't fall prey to this. It's people that are already perishing, people that have already rejected the truth, that have already rejected Christ. They refuse to love the truth. They refuse to be saved. And God brings it all to a culmination where evil is condemned and it's killed and destroyed by the word of his mouth, right? And we can read that and we can say, man, God's in control. Even though evil thinks that it's accomplishing something, it accomplishes nothing outside of his plan. Nothing on this earth, no power, no pestilence, no authority can operate outside his realm of his purpose and his plan. Man, let's go ahead and include cancer and COVID-19 in this too, right? Nothing can operate. No power, no name can operate outside of his plan and his purposes, which leads us to number three. What are these purposes? Focus on the purposes of Christ. Focus on his placement. Where is he? Not in the grave. He's enthroned at the right hand of God. And he's been empowered there. As the creator of the universe, he exhibits power over every authority, every rule, every physical might, every spiritual force. They're all in submission to him. Did I give you number two back here? We need this too. He has the authority for all time, right? Not just currently, but this age and the age to come is what Paul says. So yes, he's ruling and reigning. Yes, he has all the power. But as with all dynasties, they typically fall, right? right you think back to the, the different empires. You think back to the book of Daniel, right, where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about these empires and they fall one after another, right? Dynasties typically come to an end, right? We're all hoping that the dynasty of the Alabama Crimson Tide comes to an end too sometime, right? And we all believe that it will because dynasties fall, right? No matter how much power comes, power typically falls off at some point. It'll be a great day when that happens, right? But with Jesus and his authority and power, it's for this age and the age to come, right? We talk about teams of the decade because their dynasties typically extend for that long. And then a new team comes, right? Christ is the ruler of the world for this decade and the decade to come, right? The age now and the age forever, right? He will never relinquish his authority. He will never not be in charge. So let's look at those purposes now. So we're back in Ephesians 1. Paul says, I want you to see the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. It's according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And this is, this is where the hope really ties into. Yes, Jesus is in power, and he's in power for the church. Number one, his power is directed towards the church. Paul says that all things have been put under the feet of Christ, 
and that he's been given as head over all things to the church. The resurrected and exalted Christ has been given to the church. Now, here's what this means. It means that the universe is constrained and bent for the church to become like Jesus, to be with Jesus. Let me say that again. The universe that we live in, it is constrained and bent for the church to become like Jesus, to be with Jesus. That means that everything in this world, Christ is orchestrating and moving and directing for the purposes of the church becoming like Jesus, to be with Jesus. So everything has to fit within that purpose, right? It can't exist outside of that purpose because that is his purpose, to direct everything for the church to be like Jesus, or to be like Jesus, to be with Jesus, right? For his glory. The Father of glory is moving history for this purpose. And the same power that raised Jesus and seated Jesus is going to accomplish it. All of this supreme power is focused now on saving us and keeping us for his glory. Look what Romans 8, chapter 11, or chapter 8, verse 11 says. Romans chapter 8 and verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's now immediate. We have spiritual life and we're also guaranteed future eternal physical life when he raises our bodies back to life after death. We have been raised and seated. We saw this in Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. We have moved from death to life. He has given us a believing heart and he gives us a heart that endures to the very end. The Bible talks about this power of God coming forth in our conversion experience, right? Romans chapter one, uh, verse 16. It's the power of God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, Paul talks to the Thessalonians and he says, our gospel came to you, not just in word, right? We brought the word to you, but there was power in it and it led to your conversion, right? Power to convert us, power to sanctify us. Philippians 3.10, Paul talks about knowing the power of the resurrection of Jesus in his own life. And then we also see that it empowers us to glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. This is his purpose, right? He's directing everything towards the church so that the church makes it to the very end for his glory. So all of his power, all of his attention is on us. And we need this power because the evil one hates our faith, hates our churches, hates our marriages, hates our missions, hates our kids. 
but we can find hope and encouragement in the fact that those things have been disarmed. They don't have true power over us. Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elementary or elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Look at verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And think back to the garden, right? Adam and Eve deviate from the things of God. They fall into death, right? Satan feels like he's one, right? He's taken the the image of God, these image bearers, and turned them against God. And then God steps in and says, I'm going to send somebody. I'm going to send somebody to crush the head of the serpent, right? I'm going to send somebody to rescue human beings back to me. And by coming and dying on the cross, he disarms the power that the evil one had over us, the guilt, the death, right? The justice that we deserve, the wrath that we deserved, it's been vanquished by the work of Christ. Now we have this power of the risen Christ and we can do battle against worry and depression and temptation and doubt and sorrow and suffering and we can have victory over it because he is the head of the church. He's the authority. He's the decision maker as the head and he empowers the body, the church, to put into action these directions that he gives to us. His power is directed towards the church. And number two, his power is reflected through the church. His power is directed towards us. Paul wants us to see it with spiritual eyes. He's been given to the church, verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What it's saying here is that Jesus, who fills everything, has filled us to be the physical demonstration of his fullness to the world, right? We are to be making his greatness known to those in the heavenly places, right? So go back to the one passage I didn't read to you intentionally that also mentions heavenly places in Ephesians. And again, Ephesians is the only book that has this English translation of heavenly places. Look what it says in verse 10 of chapter 3. Let me back up to verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to bring to life for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So think about what's happening here. Jesus is far above everything in the heavenly places you got other rulers and authorities and powers in the heavenly places. And then we're down here below the heavenly places. And we're being empowered by the one who is far above all rule and authority. He is filling us up so that we can make known the greatness of God to these other rulers and authorities that are submitted to him. That's our job. That's our role as image bearers. We are to make him known, and we've been empowered to do so. 
Matthew 28, 18 through 20, right? Jesus says, all authority and power has been given to me and I give it to you because I go with you to make disciples of all nations. As he fills us up, we are to fill this world with his glory. I'll close with this passage, Ephesians chapter four. Verse 10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, how does he fill all things? He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And he wants to fill the church Right? wants to fill the church with its power, with his power, so that the power of God can be made known to this world. Our identity truth to remember from this section. Number one, every Christian has the immeasurable power of God directed towards them. Every Christian has the immeasurable power of God directed towards them. And number two, every Christian has the risen and exalted Christ ruling all things for the good of them. I mean, that's two encouraging, hopeful things as we leave today. That we have the power of God, the immeasurable power of God directed towards us, and that the ruling, reigning, risen Christ is directing everything for our good. So I want to leave you two questions, two application questions. What, what should this now do for us this week? Number one, we need to think through what's the sinful struggle or the habit that we feel we have an inability to overcome or change and recognize and realize that we need to pray for the power of God to defeat it, right? It doesn't work for us to say that I can't do this or I'm destined to be this way, right? I'm not destined to give myself to some sin because I have the risen, exalted Christ ruling and reigning at the right hand of God and that same power has been given to me with the desire and plan for me to be filled with the power of God so that I can show rulers and authorities right? That God is at work in me. Man, but we pray for it, right? Like we pray for it. We pray as Paul prayed that God would give us this power to defeat these type of things in our life. And then number two, what power, authority, or name do you fear at times? All right? That could be uh, who, who, who's currently in like political power, governor, president, right? Um, it could be uh, your, your supervisor or your manager at work, right? Somebody who you feel like does things, orchestrates things, designs things that are against your desires, against your purposes. Somebody who you feel like works against you, right? That could be the president. That could be uh, your boss at work, right? What authority, what name do you fear at times? Do you fear the name of cancer? Do you fear the name of COVID-19, right? Do you hear those terms and does it, does it cause fear in your heart because those things feel powerful 
and they feel like things that we can't control, right? And the truth is, is that we can't. can't control those things. Right? We don't have power over cancer. We don't have power over COVID-19. We don't have power over the president. We don't have power over foreign countries. And if we're not careful, we will feed our minds with the things of this world and the media of this world, and we'll strike fear into our hearts. But we can pray for the power to see God ruling it, even though we don't see it with our physical eyes right now necessarily. We can pray for the spiritual eyes to see these things are far below that risen and exalted Christ who rules and reigns over everything. Let's pray together. God, we love you. And we thank you for this passage of scripture. We thank you for the hope that it brings us. God, as we, as we emphasize Christ today, help us not to lose sight of the fact that Paul is talking about Christ in this way to help us see the power that has been given to us as believers. God, I pray that you would help us to see that your power has been given to us to conquer this week. God, help us to see this week like Caleb. Help us to respond with spiritual eyes and to see promises and opportunities to show your greatness to the world, even in the midst of giants, even in the midst of challenges, even in the midst of what could be fearful and despairing. God, help us to see that those things have been disarmed and that they are in submission to you and that you are ruling and reigning in such a way where the power is directed towards the good of the church. God, we long for the day where we can see this physically. We long for the day when Jesus comes riding in to put an end to all things and to usher us into the age to come where he will continue to rule and reign. But as we long and wait for that, God, help us to see things with spiritual eyes. Help it to be as though it were physical for us. So God, help us to to fight sin intentionally this week and not to just give ourselves to it thinking that we have no power to overcome it. God, help us not to cower in fear towards rulers and authorities and powers and pestilence and whatever else may come our way this week. Even if we face death this week, God, help us to know that everything is in submission to you and cannot operate outside your purposes and plans for the church to become like Jesus, to be with Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.